All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 14 today. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 6. A very uh, familiar passage to probably at least half of you. If you don't have a Bible, then down the middle aisle of seats are two Bibles underneath each one of those seats, and you are welcome to, to grab that. John chapter 14 will be on page 586 in this Bible. And of course, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want one, you are welcome to take that with you. As you turn, let me go ahead and introduce our passage to you today. We're going to talk about rest today. Um, rest, um, resting, finding rest in the presence of God for our troubled hearts. That really is the, the essence of our passage today. And that's an appropriate topic for us to talk about because most of us come to the D.C. area uh, from other parts of the, the country. Really, the world comes to D.C., so we're coming from all over the place. And the thing that happens to most of us when we get to D.C. is we get sucked into the, the life and the pace of things here in this area. And it's something that you can't really control. I, I call it the rat race. And the rat race is simply um, the culture of, of this place that you are immediately thrust into this idea that you have to work as hard as you can to earn as much money as you can to gain status and titles so that you can amass as much stuff as you can. And there's nothing wrong with having stuff, houses and land and stuff like that. If, if God blesses you with the money to have that, have it. But here's the problem for, for most of us. As we're pursuing this um, this, this beautiful, risk-free, wrinkle-free life. I mean, we end up driving ourselves crazy on this rat race of a treadmill kind of life. And so most of the people that I know, some of y'all included, um, we're riddled with anxiety and worry and fear. And part of it is the culture that we live in. Um, we are a troubled people. Um, and I would argue, particularly from this passage here, um, God says he has something better for us. So we're going to read together verses 1 through 6. We're going to read them out loud uh, from your Bible or your app, or you can cheat and read it on the screen. Let's read together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for... Um, the inerrancy and the infallible nature of your word. We thank you for the authority of your word. Only your word has the, uh, the power to call us to yourself and to change us. And so, Lord, we sit under your word today and pray that we would hear um, what you are saying to us as a, as a collective group, as your church, that we would hear what you're saying to us um, as individual people, as you call us to... Uh, not just a place, but uh, a life of, of rest. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear uh, from your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So really what we see in this passage is the father and the son teaming up together um, to conquer the anxiety of our hearts. And in essence, what um, the gospel writer John is capturing of Jesus, you know, some of his last words before he goes to the cross and, and dies in our place for our sin is a call to trust, to, to not freak out, to not live a life of worry, to not live in a constant state of panic, whatever it is in your life that may be going on in and around you, but to simply trust in God. Um, now, in actuality, uh, contextually, the disciples have every reason to be freaking out. I mean, they are troubled. They're troubled primarily because Jesus, this God-man who they have gotten to know, and for the last three years have really walked with him day and night and have come to understand who he is, the son of God, the Christ who God has sent into the world to, to save men. He's just told them that he's getting ready to leave. Imagine that someone that you are very familiar with, uh, that's been in your life for a significant period of time and that you that you love and that you respect, and all of a sudden they drop this bomb that they're getting ready to leave. And so they, they, feel, um, the, they feel the on, the, the, this, this thing coming, um, the regret of losing someone that, you, that you've grown to love. Not only that, um, they're starting to feel the pressure of the religious authorities. Remember, um, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests are looking for Jesus to seize him, arrest him, and ultimately kill him. And so uh, Jesus uh, finished his last public address uh, two chapters ago in, in the Gospel of John, and they're hunkered down. They're behind uh, a wall in an upper room. They're having a dinner together. They're really hiding. They're meeting in secret as Jesus prepares his disciples uh, for his, his eventual going away. Just moments before that, Jesus um, had told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And so they're like, oh, no. I mean, which of us is going to betray our Lord? And then you got Peter. Peter's always is, a, is always an interesting character. Peter is the guy that speaks before he thinks that you don't have to worry about what Peter is thinking because he's going to articulate it. And Peter, um, Peter hears that Jesus, he hears Jesus saying in, in chapter 13, someone's going to betray you. And Jesus, Peter is sitting at the table with all the other disciples eating dinner. And he motions to Jesus in verse 24. And he says, who's going to betray you? And later on in chapter 13, right before it concludes, uh, Peter is adamant and says, Lord, I, I, why can't we go with you? I, I would die for you. And Jesus looks at him and Peter says, Peter, as you think what you may, but you will deny me three times before this very night is over. And so the disciples are all sitting here. It's, it's a supper. Jesus has just washed their feet. I mean, all this stuff is, is happening in succession. And they are contemplating Jesus leaving them. They're contemplating um, Jesus being arrested and, and taken away, perhaps uh, beat. They're contemplating what will happen to them as Jesus is persecuted. And they want to know which of them is going to betray Jesus, but, but also What's going on in Peter's life that Jesus would say he's going to um, going to betray him, going to deny him? Rather, they're full of fear. And it's in, in that context that Jesus says these great words. He says, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so the word here is that Jesus is going to prepare a place for the disciples 
And that place is, we come to know, is called heaven. He's going to prepare a place called heaven for his people to dwell in. And so essentially, I've got two points for you uh, that we see in this text. The first is the promise of heaven. The second is the path into heaven. And then we're going to look at a few practical implications. How is it that we live out the reality of what Jesus is talking about? If he's talking about heaven, how do we live that out in our day today? So firstly, the promise of heaven. I'm going to read verses one through four again, because I messed them up when I was reading them the first time. Y'all get that? Let, y'all know it's like, it's such pressure to read perfectly when I'm standing up here. Y'all are putting all this pressure on me to get every word right. I'm going to actually start not, not reading and let y'all read, mess it up. All right, let me try it again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, not, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ... We are adopted into his family. We become brothers and sisters of Christ. And what Jesus is telling us here is that regardless of what we experience in this life, this world is not all there is, that there's something that comes after it. He doesn't call it heaven here, but he says he's going to prepare a place for us. And so really the the assumption is heaven is our home. You know, once we're born, we have this perspective that, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to grow and mature. I'm going to reach the pinnacle of my life and then I'll get older and then I'll fade away. They'll, I'll die. They'll put me in the grave. Um, and of course, as Christians, we, we look forward to life after after death. But honestly, the very moment that you take your first breath out of the womb, life is winding down for you. I mean, you're just ticking. You're, you're just a, a ticking you're a dead man walking for much of your life until you come to life in Jesus. But then, even then, um, your life is only a vapor, Ecclesiastes would tell us. And so, essentially, every day that you live, you are one step closer to going home, if you're a Christian. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's, it's called home. You can't come there with me right now. You'll come later, so don't worry. Don't, don't fret over whatever life's trials and the hard stuff that you're experiencing. That's momentary. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he's, kind of, he's trying to reassure them. He's like, okay, so a lot is getting ready to go down. I'm like just a day away from being uh, taken captive, and I'm going to be beat, and I'm going to be arrested. You'll see me nailed up on a cross, and I'm going to die. But 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 hold fast, because this world is not all that there is. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a place called heaven. And he's reassuring them that that they belong there. In verse two and three, he repeats a a clause. And this is an important clause. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's easy to look at that and say, well, man, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is going to heaven? And I mean, it needs some remodeling before we get there. He's got to like fix the floors and put some walls up and uh, get the furniture all situated and stuff like that. that obviously, that's not what it means. It, it means something significant. What it means is when Jesus leaves this world 
as he goes to the cross, he's going to clear every obstacle that stands in our way of being in communion with the Father. Those are, those are important. That's an important thought. That Jesus is going to clear away everything that impedes you from having full communion with God the Father. He's going to prepare a place for us with the Father, in the Father's house. And this is what's not ready. This is what he's going to prepare. Jesus is going to prepare the way of salvation. As of, you know, where, where the disciples are in context, sin hasn't been paid for yet. Death has not yet been defeated because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross and been resurrected. But Jesus is about to give his life and he's going to take it back as he rises from the grave. And so the promise of this passage is the promise of heaven. It's life in the father's house. Now, um, if you're honest, most of us get our ideas of what heaven is like. We get it from TV and from cartoons and 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 fiction, don't we? I mean, our 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 perspective of, of heaven and angels and stuff might be uh, um, Della Reese on Touched by an Angel, or we think that heaven is filled with uh, chubby cherubs with harps just strumming back and forth. They might have daffodils and tulips or whatever your favorite favorite beautiful scene that you think of when you close your eyes and think nice thoughts. Um, Heaven ain't like that. Um, Actually, I would argue a lot of Christians, um, we don't meditate on heaven. Um, We just don't think about it. If you think about it, you might think about it. You might not think about it a lot. I think we like the notion of heaven, but it's not the preoccupation of our hearts, as Jesus is, is actually suggesting to us here. And this is worth confronting because this should be our hope. Jesus is saying, set your hope on this place that I'm going to prepare for you because God made you for it. And not only that, you belong there if you've trusted in me. You know, many of us think of heaven and we think it doesn't fit. Um, It's outside of our grasp. We don't know enough information about it. We have nothing to reference it to. Um, we can grasp the idea of going to a vacation in, 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 in paradise, Hawaii, right? Danita just went to Hawaii. Like, everybody wants to go to Hawaii. I, I, can, I can grasp the idea of going to a vacation in, in the Caribbean. But when it comes to heaven, it's like, man, I just don't, I don't know what to think because I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying heaven fits. You were created for heaven. You were created to live with God forever. I know the college professor writes these words. He says, God is a good tailor. He fits the heavenly clothes perfectly to each of his customers. A place is set at the heavenly banquet table with your name on it. Your father has been waiting a long time. When he calls you, you will gladly put away your toys and go home. And so um, Jesus promises us a place uh, called home. It's a place with the father in the father's house. Um, Think about home. I mean, just think about whatever you call home. Home has a geography. When I think of home, I think of my house back, you know, just half a mile this way. But actually, but my second home is at Durham, North Carolina. It's where I, it's where I grew up. My my mom still lives there. Gosh, forty five years later. Um, and when you think of home, you think of a place that you belong. You think of a place where the door is open. You think of a place where you come in, you have the sights and the sounds, whatever those sounds are, loud kids or banging pots or um, dad working on something in the tool shed. You think of the smells. What's for dinner? That's that's home. When you think of home, you think of a place 
that you both give and you receive love, where you're accepted, where you're celebrated, where you can take your shoes off. And even if your feet stink, you're not going to get kicked out. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus doesn't say heaven. You know, I'm saying heaven, but he doesn't say heaven in this text. He doesn't call it heaven. Why? Because heaven feels like it's out of our grasp. We don't know what to do with heaven. He gives us a picture of Jesus. God, he's going to prepare a place for us. It's called it's the father's house. It's not a holiday inn. It's not a hotel, although it has many rooms. The, the, the many rooms has to do with it's, it's got enough. It's got room for you and all of your friends that would trust in Jesus. And he deliberately doesn't call it heaven because we don't know what to do with heaven. But we know what home is. Home is that familial place that we can be ourselves. We can be who God made us and we don't have to feel weird about it. And so if you if you have that place, then you know what I'm talking about. Psychologists tell us that those who don't have a place that they feel accepted or celebrated or belong to, they don't have a sauce, no welcome, they actually end up struggling um, later in life because of the way that they were socialized when they start. There's, there are plenty of studies about how orphaned children in the first two years, if they aren't loved and, and even hugged, that they grow up as social misfits later on in their life. And so if you are a person that you close your eyes and you try and dream of a place that you actually call home and there is nothing like that. There's no place that you felt like you belonged, no solace, you didn't, no place that you felt like you were welcomed or accepted. Then this is a word of comfort to you. This is what God is saying to you. He's saying, He's saying, I created you for more. He's saying, I created for you, created you for my presence. I created you for the Father's house. I'm going to make a way for you to enter that home. And that really is the promise, the promise of heaven. There's also a path. Verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Um, Thomas is impulsive like Peter. Uh, Thomas is this guy after Jesus resurrects that um, the other disciples will be in a room and Jesus will appear. And Thomas will not be there. He'll be missing. And, and they'll tell him Jesus showed up and he won't even believe it. He's like, I don't believe it. You show me Jesus and I'll believe it. Let me put my hand in the hole in his side and then I'll believe it. And so Thomas is is one that you have to prove it to him before he believes. And, and in this case, uh, you know, Thomas wants Jesus. All right. So, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. Thomas is that person at your community group that you're having this in-depth discussion. Everybody's getting into it. And Thomas like, um, Y'all might be having a good time talking about whatever you're talking about, but I have no idea. So somebody's going to have to explain it to me. Thomas is like the people that uh, say you're, you're greeting at the front door and you got a couple that comes up. This has actually happened. All right. So I'm not going to tell you which one of y'all did it. Um, you, you're greeting at the front door and, you know, a nice, friendly greeting. Hey, how y'all doing? Ah. And the guy answers back. Um, I, life is awful. We just <laughs> we just had a argument as we're driving to church. We are hating each other right now. Um, actually, we don't even like your church. I don't even know why we're here. I, I mean, honestly, I like those kind of people. You know why? You don't have to guess. I mean, it's, it's, they're not faking. They're not pretending. You know what they're feeling. I mean, sometimes you don't want to know what they're feeling, but at least you don't have to guess, right? 
And so that's the kind of person that Thomas is. And, and uh, Jesus, this is the cool thing. Jesus lets Thomas get real. He doesn't feel any reason to shut him down. Jesus just listens. And then he responds in these great words in verse six. And this is the, the, the focal point of our text today. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. This is a refrigerator verse. Uh, some of you that, uh, you know, this is like one of the first verses I remember re- remember being exposed to and remembering when I uh, became a Christian. Of course, I became a Christian reading the the, the Gospel of John. Um, and there are some important words. We could spend, I don't know, eight or nine sermons just on this um, verse six. We aren't going to do that. All right. So but I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Um, it's easy to look at what he's, what Jesus is saying here. I'm the way, truth, and life, and think that he's giving us just this list. These are descriptions of who I am. I'm the way first, and then I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And that's not, uh, it's not heretical to think that way, but Jesus actually isn't listing this stuff out as to uh, ways that we can describe what he does and who he is. He's just, he's unpacking for us what he's come to do, uh, what, who he is, but also what he's come to do. Remember, he's couching these words in this thought, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so what Jesus is saying ultimately is he's providing a new and living way for us to enter into the presence of the Father. All right, so we could cover a lot. I'm going to reduce it down to three things. Three things that I think you should take away from from verse six. The first is Jesus says, I am. See those first two words there? I I am. Um, I am is, this is the, in particular, this is the sixth of seven I am statements that Jesus uh, uses throughout the Gospel of John. And every time we see it, the Gospel writer John is calling our attention to those, those things that Jesus says that points out his deity. Jesus is saying, I'm the one and only Savior of the world. I am. Uh, and that really is John's purpose. Uh, later in the book, John chapter 20, verse 31, he gives us his whole purpose for writing. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that having believed, you might have life in his name. And so John is John doesn't give us a, a chronolog, uh, chronological view of Jesus' life. He gives us snapshots of Jesus interacting with people like you and I in different phases of their life. More importantly, he's giving us all these pictures of Jesus as the very son of God, as, as God himself. And so in John chapter six, he says, I am the bread of life. And by that means, I'm the source of satisfaction for the hunger of your souls. And then John chapter eight, he'll say, I am the light of the world. What does light do? Light dismisses darkness. Jesus says, I've come to, to d- dismiss the darkness that's in you, and then he welcomes us into his glorious light. In chapter 10, Jesus will say, I'm the door. In other words, you got to come through me, the door, in order to get into the fold of God. Later, he'll say, I am the chief shepherd. And he says these beautiful words. Uh, a, a good shepherd lays his life down for, for his sheep. And then in chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, which means that he and only he can conquer death on our behalf. He'll he'll gain victory over death by going to the cross and God got the father raising him up. And then he he demonstrates that in chapter 11 by raising Lazarus from the dead. 
And so really, when every time you see I am, this is Jesus saying, only I can save you from sin. Only I can bring you to God. Only I can offer you eternal life. So that's the first thing I, I would point out to you. The second thing is this. Jesus says, I am the way. Uh, these are important words. These are exclusive words. Um, notice here, uh, the grammar is important. I don't want to beat you over the head with, with grammar, all that grammar that you didn't learn in English when you should have. The article here is important. Jesus doesn't say, I am a way. That really is the, the claim of every religion, that I am a way to get to God, to get to heaven if you do these things. Jesus says, I am the the way, the, the article, the, the way. I am the way, the truth, the life. And this is important for us to, to understand. Um, if we isolate the word way, it, it's, it's talking about a journey. Jesus is saying, I am the path for you to get from a start point to an end point. And here's the important thing about any path that you take. In order to get to wherever your end point is, you got to know where you are. You got to know where the start point is. And this is the important thing about us spiritually. This is what the Bible says your start point is. The Bible says that you are totally depraved. And if those words don't sound good, they're not meant to be. Totally depraved doesn't mean that you're evil. It doesn't mean that you don't do good things, that you can't be charitable and kind and just the sweetest person on earth. It just means that there's nothing in you that merits God's favor toward you because he's absolutely brilliantly perfect, beautiful, and holy. Totally depraved suggests that that we are banned from God's holy presence and blessing, that we are condemned before God for the guilt of our sin. Paul says it like this in Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so to, to sum this up, there's nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. Our start point is not a good point. And so if you don't know where you're starting, you can never get to your end point. So the Bible paints this bleak picture of, of where we're starting. Someone once said, if you don't know how bad the bad news is, you'll never appreciate how good the good news is. And here's the good news. Because of how bad, how utterly bad we are, God sends Jesus. That's good news. Because there's this huge chasm between a holy God and an unholy people. And ever since the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, we have been in this perpetual state of, of not being able to stop sinning. And, and the Bible said God hates sin and he has to punish it. He punishes it with judgment and death. And so God sends Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't show us a moral good and say, do as I've done. Jesus doesn't tell us to come and strive even to be like him. This is what Jesus does. Jesus came and he he did all the striving and achieving for us. Jesus climbed the mountain of perfection for us because we could never be we would ne we would never be able to do it. Jesus lives a life we should live. He dies the death that we deserve. And, and here's what he says in this text. He says, I'm not a way. I am, I am the way. I am the way for you to be reconciled to God. He says, I'm the truth. I am the perfect representation of God, the God the Father on the earth. When you see me, you see God. When you hear my words, you're hearing God the Father speak to you. 
I am the truth. Not an arbitrary truth, but truth in the flesh. God incarnate. And then he says, I'm the life. He says, believe in me, have life in me. And I would argue that, you know, if you're troubled, if life is just not right, then these are the scriptural grounds for us to find rest for our restless souls. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the last thing that he says in in, in verse 6, the latter half, is as important as the, the first two. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, this is an exclusive, exclusive claim. It's a narrow claim, and it's focused on Jesus. It's saying that you can't get to God, you can't get to heaven unless you come through Jesus. Jesus is that way that you would get to whatever you think of as, as life, life after death. And uh, I think if I would put it in the, the terms of heaven being a, a destination that we go to and Jesus were a pilot, I mean, he's the only one that can safely land us in heaven. That's what Jesus is, say, that's what Jesus is saying. Um, in 2003, I was a, a young army officer. I was a, a major and uh, I was leaving U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I was joining my unit. I was going to um, a battalion at Fort Bragg that was going to be attached to uh, the 101st uh, Airborne Division out of Fort Campbell. They were already in Iraq. Uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom had already started. This unit had fought all the way from Baghdad to, to Mosul, uh, uh, Iraq, and I was going to join them. The way that I was going to get there, because I was coming from a different unit, is I had to take a couple plane, uh, plane trips to get to Iraq. And so uh, I st- uh, left North Carolina. My unit took me uh, and then dropped me off at BWI. So um, I should have known something was going wrong at, at this point. All right. So at, we're at BWI and it's a whole bunch of people just like me. They're going to join their unit, not a, not a consolidated unit, but a whole bunch of individual people going to join other units in Iraq. Uh, we got to BWI and um, we were getting ready to board and they told us that um, there's going to be a two hour delay because something happened to the plane. And so two hours goes by and guess what? We didn't fly out. They, they uh, overnighted us at a hotel in Annapolis. The next day we took off. Um, we went to Bangor, Maine, and uh, we, had some, we had some plane problems in Bangor, Maine. Two-hour delay. Got back on the plane. We flew to Frankfurt. Frankfurt, we had a two-hour delay. Plane problems. We got back on the plane. We flew to the island of Crete in Greece. Uh, we had a four-hour delay in Crete. We get back on the plane. We take off, we climb to 30,000 feet, everybody's like chilling. Uh, I think I was in first class, you know, the, the place where they give you like the, the heated washcloths to put on your face every once in a while. It was lovely. We're watching the movie and then all of a sudden, you know what hit the fan. All right, so the plane took this steep 10,000 foot drive in just a number of seconds. Um, stuff was falling out of the, the luggage things above your, above your seat. It was like a Hollywood movie. Uh, people screaming, people trying to, I mean, just jostling, trying to get back in their seatbelt. And then the unthinkable happens. The oxygen, the oxygen mask came out of the, the, the little thing above your seat. It, we, it was like a Sanford in some moment. Yeah, I'm going to die. Um, thank God for good pilots. Uh, this pilot was, uh, I guess we sort of crash landed. We went back to, you know, back to Crete. And uh, of course, at this point, all these, you know, soldiers and sailors and airmen on this on this plane is like, we ain't getting back on this aircraft. Y'all might as well. go. <laughs> so uh, I got a I got a four day 
paid vacation en route to Iraq on the island of Crete. They put us in a five-star hotel. I was living large. I wrote my wife a, a postcard. I was like, we got to come back here. Uh, I tell you what, it, it, it was a nice little vacation on my way to war. It's, it's pro- it probably wasn't the right way to, to get there. But um, here, here's the thing. Um, pilots are crucial. Good pilots are absolutely crucial. So if you're here and you're a pilot, I love you. Um, every time I get on the aircraft now, I always take a peek at the pilot. It's like, I, will, I hope he's a good pilot because I need one to get me to where I'm going. And, and here's what here's my point. Um, Jesus is that good, trusted pilot. He the text is telling us only he can safely get us to the destination of heaven. There's no one else that can get us there. He's going to prepare a place for us. And, you know, the end of the script, he did exactly what he promised. Heaven is that place. And as we get into Revelation 19 and 21, heaven is this glorious place. It has streets paved with gold. There, there's uh, jewels that we haven't even seen that adorn the, uh, of course, this is metaphorical. So we don't know what's going to exactly be like that. But we get this picture of this gloriously beautiful place that's supposed to remind us that it's beautiful because Jesus is there and God is there and his throne is there. And we get to be in the presence of almighty God. And so heaven is this glorious place. But I would tell you, heaven is also a dangerous place. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Heaven is a dangerous place. Why do I say that? Because way back in Genesis, Genesis 3.24, when Adam and Eve sinned, God put two cherubim. He put cherubs at the entrance to the Garden of Eden on the east side, and they got flaming swords in their hands so that no one would have access to that place. More importantly, they wouldn't have access to the tree of life. The tree of life doesn't show up again until Revelation 21. Interesting. And you know what the... The, the, the text in Genesis says, it says the cherubim are protecting the way to the tree of life. Heaven is a glorious place, but it's a dangerous place. And who are we to say that we deserve heaven or that we can get to heaven unless we've come through the, the means by which God has given us? And that means it's Jesus. And he's saying here in the text, if you've trusted in me, if you've believed in me, I am the only way that you're going to get to the place that I've prepared for you. I'm the only way that you'll get to be in God's presence. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so this is what Jesus does for us. He goes to the cross. He endures the punishment for our sin. He endures our judgment and the death that we deserve. And he does that so that we could be washed clean, as this text says, and so that we could be ushered into the the glorious yet dangerous presence of God, but know that we're safe because Jesus is leading us. He's the very way into the presence of God. He's taking us to a place that we belong. We're with God the Father. And here's the invitation. I don't know if you realize this. The invitation is that we would be with a God who that we can call our Father. No other religion has a God that we can call Father, most of them are transactional. You do this, and God will will bless you. 
Here's the invitation that Jesus is, is, is giving us. Trust in me and God becomes your father. He becomes, you become his child. He adopts you into his family. He's not, he's not uh, uh, Donald Trump on the celebrity apprentice where um, you do something wrong and he's going to fire you and dismiss you from the family. He's not an evil step parent that's going to, as soon as you do something wrong, put you back in foster care. God, Jesus makes a way for you to, to call God your father. He would do anything to bring his sons and his daughters who have wandered away, his sons and daughters who were created for his glory. He would do anything to bring us home. So here's the deal with this text. If you don't have these truths, you got to ask yourself a question. What do you have? You might have houses and, and land and money, status and title, all this stuff. Perhaps it, it may even not, not even be driving you crazy. But here's the, here's the thing that I've learned. You don't take those things to the grave with you. You can't leave this life with all that stuff. And at some point, really, all that stuff, it, it, it gives you a little bit of a headache. And so when that stuff is gone, something happens, what do you have if you don't have Jesus? I would tell you, you don't have anything. With Jesus, we have something to hold on to. We have an anchor to hold us through the troubles of life. That's, that's Jesus. That, that's what he's telling us. I'm, I'm giving you an anchor, something to hold on to. He's prepared a home for us, an eternal dwelling with God, and he's encouraging us to think on these things. That is the promise of heaven. Jesus is the path to heaven of experiencing that promise. And so what I want to do with uh, just for a few minutes is, is talk about some, some implications. How, I mean, how do we make this how do we make this a reality? And what I'm going to suggest is that you all need some room. Y'all need some room. Now, uh, most of y'all, some of y'all know me. I'm not a teetotaler, so I enjoy a good drink every once in a while. I don't do well with strong drink, but uh, I do like some things. I'm not standing up here trying to get you to drink. Um, actually, this acronym that, that I'm going to give you, it, it has nothing to do with Rome. It just ends up being the, 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 the first letter of, of the words that, I, that I'm going to suggest some things for you to do. It just happens to spell out Rome. So you'll remember that, won't you? I know some of y'all, some of you will remember this, this acronym, Rome. And the R stands for rest. You know, one of, the, one of the most practical ways that we can find rest for our troubled souls is learning how to rest. And if I were a spiritual pastor, I would give you some, uh, I would talk about how uh, God invited the Israelites in Exodus to come into his rest, but they didn't do it. He made them walk around the wilderness for, for you know, 40 years. And, and then I'd come and uh, talk about in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews and Hebrews 4 is offering you the, the rest of God. I'm not trying to be that spiritual. This is what I'm saying. Y'all need to rest. And sometimes rest is just good old sleep. How about that? Just get some sleep. You know, it's important to receive the gift of human limits. We weren't created to live and work 24-7. And we actually honor God by um, abiding by the limits that he's given our bodies. Uh, C.J. Mahaney, author, pastor, leader of the Sovereign Grace Network, wrote a book called Humility. I talk about it all the time because it's just a great book. He's talking about humility in terms of what's the ultimate greatness. But in it, he talks about this idea of of sleep and of rest as being uh, this humble posture that you take, realizing you're not invincible. You're not Superman. You just can't stay up forever. Um, 
Dallas Willard, philosopher and author, he's, he's important in the Christian world. He says one of, the most, one of the most spiritual things you can do is to take a nap. Guess what we're going to do this afternoon? Some of y'all need to go home and just take a nap. Have some rum first. Um, some of y'all are like me. Um, I don't like taking naps because I don't have time to take a nap. I'm too busy. But here's the deal. And I'm speaking to myself when I'm saying all this. When you say you're too busy to take a nap, what you're doing is saying, I'm Lord of the universe. What you're saying is, I'm in control, I'm in control of the kingdom, and the kingdom can't run unless I'm awake and alert and in control. Um, but the reality is, that's a lie. It's a lie from the bit of hell. That's what my grandma used to say. Um, it's not the truth. Uh, because the king created, the, you know, the Lord of the universe, he created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. You know why he rested? He rested to, to provide a model for us to live by. And so let me ask you this question. What would it look like? How would you build rhythms of rest into your day? How would you build rest into your week? What would that look like? And if you can't do a day, how about half a day? Ever thought about that? For those of you who are high-driven men and women that work in the marketplace, I think one of the most impressive things that you can do is simply put your work down. People, um, people watch your life more than they listen to your words. And one of the things that you can do as a witness to the God that you serve is simply um, go home when you're supposed to go home. Just say no to the rat race and go home when you're supposed to go home. The U stands for unplug. And uh, this stems from our overabundance of technology that exists in our lives. I, uh, we were sitting at a dinner table having a little bit of devotion two nights ago. I, I warned my kids. I was like, all right, so I'm going to talk about this Sunday. And, it's gonna, and we're going to unplug in our house at least one day a week. I don't know when we're going to. We haven't talked about how we're going to do it yet, but we're going to do it. Um, we are hyper-connected, and this manifests in most of us being disconnected from each other because we're so plugged into our technology. TVs and computers and iPads and iPhones and Androids and, and all this stuff. You realize what's going on in our world? Everything is connected. It all works together now so that if one ain't working, the rest of it ain't working either. But it's all, it's all, sucking, it's all sucking our attention and really it's sucking, sucking the life out of you. And so I'm not suggesting that we should all just take our iPhones and just like slam them down to the ground and and then raise our hands up and confess the sin of Lord, I've given in to technology and woe is me. I'm not saying let's not do that. But what I am suggesting is that most of us need to unplug just a little bit. Just bring yourself back to reality. You don't. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't have this stuff, folks. We didn't have it. And and this is who it's messing up. It's messing up our little kids. Um, two years ago, we, we had a community group, and we had a little kid in our community group. Uh, kids learn it quick. This is my point. Um, he thought our 27-inch TV was an iPad because it was black. It was like this and had a little circle at the bottom. So he would go, he pushed the, he pushed the button, and then he'd swipe up, thinking it was, it was a giant iPad going to turn on. Every one of your kids, every one of your kids knows how to work an iPhone, Right? My kids do. I'm not. My kids do, too. My kids know technology better than I, Jonathan. How do you fix this? David, what are you, they know it. We need to unplug. And this is going to take some discipline on our on our part. What would that look like? I mean, could you perhaps take whatever is your day off of the week and unplug part of that day? Just like turn your stuff off and sit it down a couple of hours. 
perhaps even the whole day? Is there a day of the week that you could actually do that and not worry about who's going to contact you, who's going to text you, Facebook you, tweet you, email you, and just know that it's going to be waiting for you when you turn yourself back on again? Can we do that? The, the M is for meditation. And this is simple. This is a call to meditate on God's word. And so if resting and unplugging gives us an opportunity to lay down the distraction, meditation gives us an opportunity to fill our minds with God. Because here's the thing. If you devote yourself of one thing, you're only going to fill it up with something else. And so you got to put something good in there before the bad stuff fills it up. Colossians says, put off sin, put on Christ. I'll conclude with this. What makes you anxious, worrisome and full of fear? What keeps you from resting? Here's what Jesus is exhorting us to. He's exhorting us to trust God. We live in a world where there's ample reason to fret. We only have to look a week ago. I mean, in the last week and a half, we've had three college shootings and needless deaths. We're reminded as we turn on the news, as you flick on your, you know, your, new, you know, your iPhone now, you just flick left and you got all this news that just comes at you, whether you want it or not. We're reminded that the world that we live in is, um, it, I don't know, it's just, it's not what it was meant to be, right? It's not what God intended. We can't just think happy thoughts and all of our problems go away. But this is what Jesus said. He says, I've made a way for you to know me. There's a place I've prepared for you. This world that you're living in, it's not the end. The best is yet to come. Jesus has prepared a place for us. He calls it home. We call it heaven. And we should wrap our minds around those truths. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for the picture that you give us of home. And I pray that for those of us here in this room who have had happy thoughts, of soothing thoughts, of comforting thoughts of a place that they would call home, that you would assure them even now that the place that you call the Father's house uh, is, is a zillion times better than that. And here's the reality of, of heaven for us. It's not, that, it's not the grandeur of the, the geography of the place. Here's the cool thing about heaven. Is you're going to be there. Jesus is going to be there in all of his beauty, and all of his glory. Revelation says that there won't be any sun or, or need of electric light because Jesus, the glory of God, will be the light that lights the place. The streets will be made with gold, paved with gold. The tree of life will be there and its fruit. It will have 12 kinds of fruit for every month of the year. And the, the leaves of that tree will be the healing of the nations. Lord, and even if that's metaphorical and it will be something else, we, we get the picture. It's going to be a pretty cool place. And so, God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to grasp the, uh, the glory of this place that you're creating for us. And I pray that as we as we dare to think about it, that you would incline our hearts to it, that we would not cling on to this world as, as we're holding on to, um, to something that we don't want to let go of. I pray that we would let go and that we would um, incline our hearts to, to where you'll be, a place called home. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.